But if I scratch below the surface, which I tend to do, I poke and prod and ask the hard questions, I see a different story to that, and, and that's, that's life, that's just normal, that we have stuff going on that we feel doesn't, isn't appropriate to let out. But most of us, and now very broad brush in the West, grapple with a whole bunch of unresolved issues. They're tensions. They're like a residual ache, a residual itch inside of us. And we get so accustomed to it that we, 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 we cease at times to let those questions find resolution in our hearts and minds. But um, if you were around in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you would have heard Henry Thoreau's quote, uh, Beaten to Death, where he says uh, that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. I would include, obviously, women in that as well. Maybe not so much, but us guys struggle a bit to deal with our things. Um, But it's speaking of that silent, the silent questions that we know the answer, but we don't know the answer. Because, and we can tell, because we live lives that are unresolved. We constantly aim for something that we haven't quite got yet. We, We ache for something that isn't ours yet. We might have all that we hoped for, but then we find ourselves hoping for something else. And so we'll ask ourselves questions like, why am I here? These are existential questions. What's my purpose in life? Is there life beyond all this? Uh, these are the questions that echo throughout our community. Christian or not, we all grapple with these sorts of issues. And uh, reading, the, reading the latest data out of McCrindle, for example, who, who analyses this constantly in Australia, the stats for those who go to church obviously are reducing We've been in a decaying orbit, if I could put it that way, decaying orbit of church attendance uh, and those who identify themselves as Christian for about 50-odd years. And then we had this, what they call a black swan event, where it's just an asteroid hits the satellite that's not already on a decreasing orbit, called COVID, and it just obliterated the, the, the way we view and what people were locked into in their lifestyle when it comes to the church world. And, and so the stats for Australia are increasingly decreasing when it comes to who identifies as a Christian. For the first time, we're below 50%. I think it's something like 44% of people identify as Christian and only about 7% of them uh, attend the church regularly. So we have these questions about eternity. The interesting thing is that the numbers for churchgoers have declined, but the numbers of those who are spiritually aware and asking eternal questions has increased. So the curiosity about these unresolved issues is increasing. The desire to find them in a church setting is decreasing for a number of reasons that are full of the news articles that we see these days. We might tuck into that a bit later. But so just to kick this off, I want to ask you a question and get this as personal as I possibly can. When you look in the mirror in the morning, who do you see? What do you see? Who do you see when you look? Do you, are you going to do it anymore? The picture I get not as good as it was 30 years ago. Aesthetically speaking, gravity takes hold. All sorts of things take hold. It's, uh, I, look, I look myself in the eye and go, where did that young boy go? I still feel like I think the same. Do you have the same experience? I still feel like I'm about 20 years old. I'm still as dumb as I was when I was 20 years old. But the body is someone else's now. Who, but who do you see? If you, if you look beyond that, have you ever taken the time, maybe it's just us introverts that do this, to look into your own eyes, to look beyond the hazel or brown or blue, whatever it is, and go... Who is in there? Who is me? What is me? Who am I? Who are you? Is it what we see? Are you just a physical body with bones and skin and muscle and and neural pathways buzzing through your brain? What about what isn't seen? 
Who are you that isn't seen? Who, who are you in the realm of your soul and your spirit? Because I believe there's more to all of us than neural pathways. And yet, to some extent, this is a very difficult question to, to probe into because all we have is, is what we are. And so we all just have 1.3 litres, hopefully, of, of brain matter, some of it working better than others, and, and there, are, there are definite physical things that impinge on that. Some of us, our, our physical bodies and brains aren't working as, as well as others. Some have different levels of IQ and all this sort of thing in there. We have broken bodies. We have age limitations that constrain us. So our inner world, our soul, can somehow be, the, or the way that's portrayed to the world, and I'm getting a little bit philosophical now, the way who I am is seen by who you are, I would have 200 versions of who you think I am in the room. And then I've got my own, which changes depending on how much I listen to you. Don't we? Because that's how we form an opinion of ourselves based on what we think of ourselves, plus to some extent what other people think about us. So Scripture goes even deeper. Scripture talks about this inner world, the soul realm, and even deeper again, the realm of the spirit. Spirit, soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions, and your physicality. We're looking in the mirror. We're seeing what's physical. We're hoping there's something deeper within, which is our, our thoughts and our emotions, the things that aren't so obvious. But then there's this other part of us in the architecture of humanity called the spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, Who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? And so there's part of us, the eternal part of us, where God dwells for those of us who have placed our faith in him. He comes to dwell with us. And so as a person whose IQ is 70, any, any worth less, less worthy than someone who has an IQ of 180, is someone who's beautiful, any more worthy than someone who we would look at and say not, what determines the worth of a soul? Is it who you say I am or is it who God says I am or is it a mixture of all of that in reality? Because we're all grappling with the reality of this. If we weren't, we wouldn't be so ambitious. We wouldn't drive the cars we drive. We wouldn't invest in all the things we do with our time. We wouldn't prioritise what we do. It's depending on how you see yourself, often in comparison with everybody else. Why do we fight so darn hard to live this life? Is that the life that we're created to live? Good questions to grapple with. So how do you answer the question, who am I? Do you know? Is it resolved? So we have these, these, these entry points of how we determine who I am, internal, external, uh, both of which may be partially or completely wrong. Often, I spend a lot of my time in the, in the very limited amount of counselling that I do, helping people understand with clarity who they are, as opposed to the nonsense that we create in our mind based on the things we think other people think we are. The complexity of that. I love the passage in Matthew 16 where Jesus bounces this whole idea around. It's almost as if he starts a conversation confused about who he is because he asks a question. Who do you, what about you, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. In other words, your brain wasn't good enough to think that one up, baby. This was given to you by revelation through your spirit interpreted by your soul and communicated to us through your body. Fascinating process, revelation, how that works in people's lives. It was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. And straight away, what's his first response? And I tell you. So Peter has just identified accurately who Jesus is. What's the response? And I tell you. Let me tell you who you are. Fascinating dynamic. You're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. That wasn't his name. His mummy and daddy had called him Simon the wispy reed, 
You are a whisperer. He might have, as when he was early on in his life, he might have, he might have just drifted from side to side. He might have been pliable, a bit of a chameleon, wasn't quite sure who he was. And that name sort of stuck because they used to name you according to your character back then. And Jesus looks at him and goes, that's not who I'm seeing you as. I see you as something completely different to what everyone else has named you. And we, we've talked a lot about that, haven't we, over the years, how God calls us to a different name. I've, I've called you Rocky, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. We could get really theological there about the grammar and what that all means. But what I love is the principle. No sooner does Simon get it right about who God is, that God communicates to him based on that truth, based on who you know I am, now let me tell you who you are based on who I am because that's, that's the dynamic. If you want to understand what true human identity is, it's completely reliant on who we decide or determine the reality of who God is. If we get that picture of who God is wrong, our picture of ourselves will be completely wrong as well. He says, based on this truth that you've just given me, let me tell you the truth of who you are, not what the world tells you that you are. So the, the key to the door of knowing who you are, when you ask that question as you eyeball yourself in the mirror, the key to that door of knowing yourself is actually found when we know God. And this is key. This is, this is a, a, an eternal truth that has eternal consequences when we get it right and when we get it wrong. See, hum, human identity has always sought to be found in other ways. In the post-fall, where humanity separated themselves from God, when that connection between God and humanity was broken, life evolved very quickly, particularly in the last two or three hundred years, to become unanchored from the safe harbours of identity, of who we thought we were. Identity back in the old days used to be inherited. Uh, if we weren't finding it from God himself, that we would find other ways. And it was inherited essentially by things like um, our geographical boundaries. You know, I'm a, I'm a Cockney Eastender from London, governor. You know, and that's who, you, that's who you were. That's who you, you were born into that and that's what you stay. I'm a cobbler's son, therefore I'm a cobbler. Identity was inherited by where you were, uh, who your parents were and, and things like that. Uh, it was stable, it was fixed, it was clear, for better or worse, may or may not have been accurate, but at least it was constant. And it was defined exclusively pretty much from things like your parents, uh, your status in life or the status of your parents, your vocation, your religion, your ethnicity, the village in which you were brought up. And then under that sort of identity, you'd have these little subtle add-ons that we, if, if I ask you, who are you, often I'll get these sorts of answers. Well, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a child, um, uh, things like that, or I'm a, I'm a salesman or a professional or whatever. We add these sub-identities to this higher identity. And that used to be the safe harbour of identity for years and years gone by. But those anchors in recent years have been removed. And you'll notice that we don't identify ourselves predominantly from the upbringing of our parents because now there's ease of travel. And if I'm, if I'm born in Yorkshire, if I'm, I'm born in Corinth, it doesn't mean I'm going to stay there for the rest of my life. Because now I've got a car, now I can get on a plane, I can live anywhere, I can literally do anything. And in this mix that we call Australia, there's a level of cultural diversification now that says all bets are off about who I I don't identify myself as Australian because I'm Caucasian, because the most wonderful Australians aren't Caucasian. And that's what makes Australia great and continues to do that. So it's not about what I look like, but it's changing because... Now I can't say because I live in Sydney or Brisbane, I look like this or I do that. I can go anywhere and do anything. Plus add to that a culture of individualism 
which says I can do whatever I want because it's all about me and I don't serve my father's dream, I serve my own dream. Society has become, and you've seen it in recent, the last decade, fluid. So society is now completely fluid and completely fragmented. And guess what's happened? So have our identities. Now we claim the right to be malleable and changeable. I can look at life like an inkblot diagram that a psychologist gives me and interpret what I want it to look like and say I'm identifying as X. And so identity becomes this right to declare I am what I am and I am my own special creation. That's what we're living with right now. Generation Alpha will live and die on that hill. I listened yesterday, uh, the last two days I've been immersed in a couple of um, fascinating conferences. One of them was off-site, one we hosted here. The one we hosted here was from uh, an, an organisation called Lusanne. I'm not sure whether anyone's ever heard of Lusanne. It was started by um, Billy Graham and John Stott. And they, they meet about every decade or two decades or so on a, on a global uh, meeting to discuss, uh, it's a real, it's a think tank. And they come out with the, the, the philosophy of what the church needs to emphasise in regards to evangelism and, and so on uh, in, the, in the next 10 or 20 years. And we had a group of the Lausanne people here yesterday. I got to do the, I wasn't intelligent enough to, to apply, um, but I got to do the tech at the back. So I'm doing the slides, you know. So I'm listening in on all the TED Talks of all the smartest people around. There were more, there were more degrees in the room than there were birthdays. Uh, you had to have about four, I think, to qualify to speak. And... Um, and it was all very stimulating and such, but the, 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 one, the one person that got me was a 20-something young lady from Sydney, non-Caucasian, who was called in to talk on behalf of Generation Alpha and how the church was reaching or not and why and why not those people. And she, was, she began to talk about her identity as someone with, I think, uh, Sri Lankan roots, uh, came out here when she was three or four, speaks like a very well-cultured North Shore of, of Sydney, Australia, you know, and very articulate, did the whole thing. Uh, but she said, you, you have no idea what we're fighting against now with identity. You've told us one thing. You've told us, boomers and Gen Xers, uh, you've told us that we can do and be anything. And we've grabbed that, she said. We, we are that. We'll do what we determine that we want to do. But now we're lonelier and we're more hopeless than any generation has ever been in society. And that's what they're living with. The right to be self-determining and yet completely lost in the process because there's no anchors left. And so in their own words, it creates an existential crisis. Who am I? Why do I exist? These questions have never been asked before like the way they are now, where it's, it's up for grabs. For us who've being Christians for decades, it's a surprise to us. But, and yet we, we answer it, and yet our life tells us in many ways that we haven't actually resolved it. Who am I? Because if, if I know who I am, I'm secure in who I am. I'm not fighting to be perceived as somebody else. And so this society dedicated to distance from God, who defines our anchors, has lost its anchors. And so we upgrade those sub-identities. I'm sorry if I'm getting a bit theoretical for a moment, but we've taken the things that, that were subservient to this identity that God gives us, and we've made them our identity, our gender, our, our sexual desires, our religion or our vocation or our marriage, ethnicity, our footy club, am I dolphins or broncos, tattoo it on my soul, this is who I am stuff. You know, it's like, get a life. <laughs> it's like, is that, is, that, is, is that the answer to the question, who am I? 
And so they suffer the angst of who we can be and who we should be and somehow making the choice and in, in the process miss out on the security and the peace of just being, just being. And when we're not clear, I read a great article by Michael Bird this week on this and he said, but when we're not clear on who we are, we become identitarian orphans. In other words, we're, just, we're fatherless, we're motherless because we're determining who we are not based on lineage anymore. And so we must guess to which group that we belong to because we're human, so belong I must. So we determine what group I'm going to belong to and we find ourselves fighting then for the recognition and rights of that group. And sometimes I suspect we overfight, as I've spoken to some who feel compelled to fight so hard to tell the world who they are. They're overfighting because they're hoping beyond hope that someone will rise up and prove to them that they're wrong and there's a better way to go. But the sea is open for them, incredibly distressing. And so it's largely a state of being unresolved. It's like being an eagle hatched but released into a chicken pen, growing up amongst the chickens. And you can believe and act like a chicken all your life, but those darn wings just keep hanging out there. And you know this, this isn't resolved until I can figure out what they're here for. So I want to really go there today and talk about that because Simon, when he talked to Jesus, found identity because he identified with God. And you wonder why this dynamic plays out the way it does. It started off in Genesis 2, verse 7, where it talks about the creation story and, and how what is a human being? Because we're not just human, we're supposed to be being, not human doing, not, not human anything else. We're a human being and what that means. It says, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, so we're made of the earth, we're made of the stuff of this planet. Some people say I'm just a spirit who's stuck in this dodgy old body at the moment, as if to be human is, means I'm spirit only. That's actually not true. See, God created us to be physical and emotional as well as spiritual. You're not fully human without a body. And so the, the perishable is closed with the imperishable. When we die and we go to you know, eternity with God, we, we have a body again because we're not human without it. So the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. Why did he become a living being? He was living because he had breath in him, the breath is a word ruach, uh, or if I did it properly, ruach. Uh, it's a Hebrew word for spirit, God's spirit. God's spirit was, was imbued into humanity. He became spirit and soul and body, and by that definition, became a human being. So what happens when humanity turns its back on that and says, God, we don't want your way. We want to be self-determining, which is what happens in Genesis 3. They say, Stand back, God. We want to determine what's right and wrong. We want to do it our way. We want to make those choices about what we should be doing with it and who we are. So we distance ourselves. Ruach departs. And we're left with humans who aren't being. Dust without breath. And that's our life, isn't it? When, when We're not living from God. We're not living from the joy that that brings. We're human. We're still here. We're still turning up. I'm still there when I look in the mirror, but there's something missing inside. I'm not enjoying this life of just being because I'm just human. No fullness in my identity. So identity comes not just from knowing God. This is what got me about this passage with, with Simon. It's not just from knowing God or knowing about God. There's something else that says God knows me. And that's where the identity comes from. My identity comes from God who knows me. The Christian view is identity isn't constructed. It's given to us by God. Simon, you are 
the rock, Peter the rock. You're not Simon, you are this. The world said this, I say that. And this identity is a promise, but it's also a reality. It's like, yeah, that's who you are, but it's also who you're going to grow into. The very next thing that, that Simon said was very un-Peter-like. You know, and Jesus had to rebuke him for it. He said, get behind me, Satan. Like, fail, first thing, fail. Rocky, I'm not just yet. But I am, but I'm on the way. And so 1 John 3, the, the apostle talks into it. He says, now we are children of God. That's who we are. If you want to know in a word, what is my identity? Child of God. That's what I am. That's who I am. Without God, I'm, I'm very little at all. Now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. It's like I am, but I'm not yet. So I'm on the way. I'm, I'm rocky, but I'm not yet. So he took years where the Spirit was working in him and his identity began to form and evolve in accordance with the promise that God had placed over his life. But you see the beautiful dynamic that the relationship is to know God, but more importantly, to be known by God. And you think, well, aren't we all known by God? He knows everything all the time, always has, always will be. He knows everything, every when and everywhere. And we like to say we know God, but we can do all that and still lack identity. To be honest, Christians are as insecure and unhinged and mucked up as anybody else out there, generally speaking. Have you found that? Or is it just me? Maybe I'm over, over past it or something. I don't know. But we tend to be a bit similar. The stats are all the same. Broken marriages, emotional breakdown, sickness. Stats are identical. We're as unhinged as everybody else if we don't get this. So you can know about God, you can be as holy as the Pope and still be unhinged. The question isn't whether you know God, it's whether God knows you in the the way the Bible says he knows us. See, Simon knew Jesus, but experienced being when he was fully known by Jesus. It's this being known by him and experiencing that, that we know who we are. That's why Jesus said that's a revelation. You're, you're being known, and that being known has released what you've just said now. It's a fascinating process. Have a look. Let's, let's just deep dive there a little bit because that can sound a bit weird. 1, 1 Corinthians 8.3, whoever loves God is known by God. Hang on, God knows everybody. Yeah, he does. He knows about everybody. But this word known is, is the Greek word gnosko with, as opposed to oida knowledge. Oida knowledge means, yeah, I understand. I get that. Makes sense. I know you. I know about you. But this word is gnosko, which is a deep, dynamic, ongoing relationship that, that forms and morphs as you're going. I know by experience, and especially in this sense, relational experience. I'm known by God. We're walking this deal together. I don't just know about him. I know him. I know this God who knows me. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. So I know God a bit. I've experienced him a bit. But he knows me fully because he's dwelling in me and I can cooperate or not cooperate with that. I can live as I did in Genesis 3, distance myself and live my life under my own horsepower all day and all night. Or I can choose to engage with him and be fully known and have my security come from that. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century Christian philosopher, says, not only do we know God through Jesus Christ alone, but we know ourselves 
only by Jesus Christ. Apart from him, we do not know what is our life, nor our death, not God, nor ourselves. So the bottom line is, I know who I am when I'm known by God. I'm, ex- I'm, I'm living in the mystery of that experience. See, Adam and Eve, if you read the old King James, it said that Adam, Adam knew Eve. He didn't check out a poster of her. It talked about their sexual relationship and their intimacy of marriage. Adam knew Eve. This is the same way that we know God and God knows us. So the inference we've got to draw from that is that it's actually possible to not be known in that way by God. Can it happen to you and I, the religious ones? Well, apparently so. Um, Evidence would say today it hasn't changed a great deal. But Jesus confronted this with the religious folk of his day who knew the Bible really well. And I know a lot of people in this church and outside of this church who know the Bible incredibly well. You'd never call them a Christian. Some of them profess to be. They believe in God, but the devil does that too and form their life based on what they interpret Scripture to mean about how they can live their life. But I look at their life and I know they're not known by God in the way we're talking about. Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all this stuff? Didn't I live my life based on the fact that I'm a religious person? I played the organ on Sunday and I, and I did this and I did that. Did all this stuff, driven out demons in your name, even done miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. How haunting is that? Can you imagine that? What a disappointment that would be. <laughs> let's, not, let's not do that. Let's not go there and say, just because of the way I perform and the lifestyle that I've created, that somehow I get to heaven and go, hey, surely I've lived up to the standard. It's never been about the standard. It's always been about a relationship. He didn't die so that you could live a religious-looking lifestyle. They had that before Jesus came. didn't work then. doesn't work now. It's about relationship. He died so that we could be known by him. Pretty haunting, isn't it? I had my own reflections this week on, on this sort of thing, um, maybe because I was uh, preaching, I don't know, but I, I got a chance to go away for a day, a, a personal reflection day. It's sort of a, a two nights and a day where I just go away and pray and, and seek God about some things. And I found myself, before I got too far along, asking myself questions about my next, where are we going, God? Where's this walk with you and me going? We've been, we've been hanging around now together. We've had a lot of fun. We've gone through a lot of trials. You know, it's, uh, it's 41 years now that we've been walking together, never let me down, never give me any reason to walk away. What's next? Is there anything next? Do we keep going? I'm happy for either. And I just got this sense straight away that there were some dynamics in my own life that I, that I, I see everywhere else as well, but, but this is a prayer time about me, and I could just see if I wanted to take those next steps of knowing what it meant to be known by him, there were some next steps that I had to make because he wasn't the one withholding. So it's the next question, obviously, is, Lord, what's the problem? And I, I realised that I've, I had my own unresolved issues, as we probably all do. It's just a matter of do we want to name them as such. And for me, one of them was the comfort zones in my own life were leaving me unresolved. Because I've had, like all of us, I've had my life with enough trouble in it. I don't want any more. I don't like problems. I don't like it when people don't like me. And I, don't, I, don't, I don't like that stuff. I, just want, I want to be liked by people and just have no problems. I want to be rich and, and you know, I want to have everyone love me and life go well. And 
someone win an election besides a Labor government now and again, and, you know, not because I'm against Labor, but, I mean, who's going to keep them? I don't know. Let's not go there. Sorry. Delete that one, Liam. It's just Labor won the election last night in New South Wales. Most Queenslanders didn't even know there was an election in New South Wales last night. Fascinating. I was told by someone from a different country. He said, oh, how'd the election go? What election? Anyway, let's not get political. I'll just ruin the day. But for me, there were these comfort zones in my life that I felt were leaving me unresolved. And when I say comfort zones, I mean a preference to find a more trouble-free life. I didn't want to have to make a decision where I said, God, whatever it takes and whatever pain you're going to take me through, I'm happy to go through that to get to the other side. I've done that for 40-odd years. You know, can we, is there a path that's a little bit easier? I'm 60 in a month's time. Looks, it's looking really great. And I found that, that comfort zone thing was leaving me unresolved because I knew I'm withholding now. I'm not hearing what he might be saying because I don't want to know about it. I want a break. Give me a year off from all the trouble. I just want a break. And, I'm, and, and, and this comfort zone, I can see you're identifying with what I'm saying. It's been a tough few years, hasn't it? Everything's been disrupted. Let's just have a year of peace. But that was forming a blockage for me, at least from my angle, where I wasn't able, I couldn't say with full conviction that I would do whatever he wanted, I would take whatever steps he wanted me to take, because I was aware that my flesh was too alive at that point. I, my flesh was not dead. I was still responding to my desire for comfort and not having enough faith that he'd give me peace whatever path he takes me on. So I'm holding back. I'm unresolved. And I had to deal with it on the spot. Whatever it takes, I don't care what, what it costs my flesh, we're going forward. I'm going to die one day anyway and I can be comfortable then, hopefully. So this flesh thing... This comfort thing, this little idol that we have needs to get resolved. Do I need it all to go my way in life before I say yes to God? Because by saying that, I'm already saying no. That was one for me. Another one was a really sneaky little one because I'm, I feel like I'm a man of, of, a, of a decent amount of faith. But if I looked in the mirror really carefully, I could see that unbelief was sneaking into my life. Just a little bit of unbelief. And it, didn't, it wasn't that God can or, or won't do incredible things. We see them here all the time. We see miracles. We see great things happening in people's lives. Why would I, how could I ever have unbelief in my life? But I found it was this over-concern. I was too concerned about trouble that I can control or I can't control. And I was allowing these, the turbulence of life to rob me of this very simple belief that God will get me to where he's designed me to be with or without them. I look back in the 40 years of my Christian faith and I realise that he's actually got me where he needed me to be despite all the things that have gone wrong and all the bad choices I've made and all the dumb things that I've done and other people have done that I thought might have robbed the path that he had for me. I hit the age of almost 60 and I go, he's actually got me exactly where I was always supposed to be. Why did I worry so much about the detail on the way? Why did I let it rob me of faith? Because it all got too complicated for me. And, I, and this, this simple faith didn't seem to fit the complications of my life, this Western life that has all the intricacies that we have to navigate. We don't have enough faith that God is the God of the complicated and he can somehow work in the midst of all of that and get us home anyway. And I found it, it was unresolved. I'd lost that, that simple childlike faith that when I was 20, it was easy. You'd believe stuff and you would just see it happen. Life was, I, had, I owned nothing 
There was no ramifications. You pray the big, bold prayer, whatever it takes, God. Whatever it takes, you've got nothing to give, mate. Just step, keep stepping forward. But then I get married and then you got kids and a mortgage and a career and now I've got something to lose and I don't want to pray that prayer anymore. That's unbelief. That's, that's not trusting God like I used to trust. It was sneaky. It snuck up on me. So I had to repent of it. Another bit of unresolved life was just this busyness a busyness of life, feeling obliged to bow my knee to society that says I'm supposed to be at work at a certain time and home at a certain time and do this and look like that and all this sort of, all this stuff that makes our life so complex. And the verse that came to mind was, do you know that you're a slave to the one that you obey? And I realised I'd become too much of a slave to life. I'm letting life, Western life, determine what my God life is supposed to look like. So these PRD days are so hard for me to find. Why? Because I'm too busy serving you lot. And I know you wouldn't ask me to do that. But, I, but I allow, I've allowed myself to get too wound up in this ball of string that is church and kingdom life. And I know everyone would long that I rest more, you know. So I'm doing that. I'm doing that. You've got to resolve these things. You've got to make the hard choice. And so I, like the rest of us, need to take new steps to walk into this journey of identity, of who I really am, because my identity is formed on this journey. Simon eventually became Peter uh, as he surrendered his flesh more and was filled with the Spirit more and all that kind of stuff. But I wonder what your life, how this, when you look in the mirror again when you get home and you go, well, who am I? And what are my next steps to developing this human that God's made me to be? What will bring you closer? What will make you more known by him? And with that knowing come the security where I don't worry anymore about the turbulence. I don't worry about the, the idols all around me that I'm used to bow to. I just say I'm just living this moment as a human being, loved by God, known by God. For me, it required opening up the no-go zones. And I know every single person on every single seat has this thing I call a no-go zone at least one, where you say, God, you can have all this access to all these parts of my life, but don't go there. I reserve the right to be concerned about whether I have a spouse or not one day. I reserve the right to control everything about my finances and my health. Don't you touch that. Don't you ask me to give that away because I'm in control of that. It's a no-go zone. To, to know God and be known by God means there are no no-go zones. It means the door is open to every part of our life because I need to be known by him, which means everything has access. He has access to me physically, spiritually and emotionally. God has an open door to all of me so I can be known by him. It's a full experience, not a petitioned-off experience. That's when it gets a bit tougher, doesn't it? It's more than just, I'm a Christian. It's like, are we? Who are we? So if you don't know, if, you, if you're not, after this description today, feeling known by God, how do you become known by God? Well, it's a relationship that's accessed through faith. There's only one way to be known by God, Christian or not. If you're here today and it's your first time in a church setting and you go, well, I, don't even be I haven't believed in God, but I've just, I've just shown you a dozen ways why I'm not believing in God enough. So I'm assuming some of us here are the same thing. My belief is not where it needs to be, to increase the relationship with an increase in faith. 
Somehow I need, and faith I mean by that, relying on him in the deepest parts of who I am. So it's a faith step. Whatever my next step is, is a faith step, which means I'm relying on him, not on something else. So there is no no no-go zones because I'm relying on him instead. I'm safe with him. He sees me and he knows me and he identifies who I am. And he says, you're beautifully and wonderfully made. No matter how you look when you look in the mirror, you're just right. You are who he needs you to be. You're becoming who he wants you to be. You'll end up where he wants you to be. And in Revelation 2.17, it just gives that beautiful picture of the stone that he gives you with, with that name written on it. For all of us, it's a mystery what that name is. But when we get there, we'll look back and go, oh, that's what you were doing all of those years. And he's going to get you there. The heavenly GPS, no matter whether you've turned right when he turned left, he just says, turn right again now. Just keep turning right. Come back home. And he's going to get you there in the end. So what I'd like to do is just lead us all in a, in a prayer. But if, if you are here and, and you've never heard this before, you, you didn't even know that you needed God in your life and you know you need to surrender your life to this God who sees you, then you can pray this prayer with us as well. So why don't we pray, pray and then I want, to, I want to pray a declaration over us about our identity. So Father, when we come before you now, I pray for each of those, Lord, we all harbour our own little pockets of unbelief. But for those who have never placed their faith in you in that monumental, no-going-back way, I pray that you give them the grace right now to say, I can't do this on my own. I can't live just as a human. I need to be a human being. I need to surrender to you, Lord Jesus Christ, because you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and I can't be good enough to earn this relationship. I place my faith in what you did on the cross to pay the price for my sin, to make me pure in your sight. And I invite you into my life. May your spirit dwell with me again. The breath of God, come, dwell in me again. And receive the salvation, the eternity that comes with that. And I pray for all the rest of us who have already given our hearts to Christ, but we're on the journey of Simon becoming Peter. Lord, I pray that in all the unresolved spaces, Lord, you would just come and show, as you showed Peter through revelation, I pray that you would show us in our innermost being where we need to open the door to you so that we can be fully known by you and find the security of just knowing that we're human beings loved by God. And I want to declare over you today who you are. First of all, you are the dwelling place of God. He dwells in you. He lives in you and he likes it there. He doesn't only likes you, he loves you as you are. Beautifully and wonderfully made. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, you, yourselves, individuals and all together are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. God is here amongst us as his children and he's in you as his child. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to hide as Adam and Eve did when they separated, they instantly felt they must hide themselves away. Open the door to him right now of all the things you've hidden and all the no-go zones you haven't let him in. Lord, come in, shine a light and be present there. You are chosen. Ephesians 1 says, In him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will 
You're going to end up where you need to end up, where he's designed for you to end up. He's bigger than your confusion. He's bigger than all the calamities that have made your life go wrong. He's bigger than your mistakes. He's bigger than your stupidity. He's bigger than your smartness, bigger than your cleverness, bigger than your planning, bigger than this world that you think has held you back. He's bigger than all of it and he will get you to where he has predestined you to come, to be who he has predestined you to be because you are chosen. Beyond that, you are a child. You're not an object, you're not a project for him. You're not something that he doesn't care about. You're his child. Romans 8.15 says, the spirit you received brought about your adoption into sonship. You've been brought in by his choice and by him we cry, Dad, talking to God himself. And the spirit himself testifies with your spirit that you're God's children. Want to know if you're a Christian? The Spirit will tell you. You can't separate yourself from Him by anything in your own actions. You're not that dumb. You're not that wrong. You can't run away. You can't, out, you can't unperform so badly that He stops loving you and He will separate Himself from you. Nor can you earn it by being a good Presbyterian or a good Brethren or a good Church of Christ or Baptist or Pentecostal. You can't earn it. doesn't matter how high you hallelujah or how low you bow. You're not going to earn any more preference. You are just accepted as you are. You are loved unconditionally. You're a dwelling place of God. You are chosen by Him. You're a child of God. But there's more. You're His ambassador on earth. You're his heir. You're his heir. You inherit all that he has with Christ. Now, if we are children, it says, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8. God wants you to join him in bringing other people to life, in making the world a better place, to investing your days in the things that really matter and helping those others to do the same. You're a dwelling place of God himself. You are chosen. You are a child. You're an heir with Jesus. And so now unto him, Lord Jesus, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Amen. Amen.